0: So we're going to make a left turn here at this traffic light. Okay. Hey, this is exciting. I mean, you must know these roads better than I do. Wave is a, a British AI startup, yeah. and we've been thrilled to raise $260 million of investment so far mm-hmm. and build a, a world leading AI team here to pioneer this technology mm-hmm. here in London. And what we're seeing today is our AI safely navigating through these roads. Uh, we picked you up yeah. from DFT. And we're driving around and we'll take you safely to Parliament.
1: That was Alex Kendall, the co-founder of WAVE, travelling in a car with the Transport Secretary, Mark Harper, around the streets of London in November 2023. There was something special about that car. It was self-driving. Thanks to WAVE, a company based in London, not in Silicon Valley or Detroit, the reality of everyone travelling in self-driving cars might be closer than you think. I'm Graham Ruddick, and this is Business Leader, a podcast that takes a second look at big business stories. In this episode, we speak to Alex Kendall about the story behind Wave, which might just be the UK's answer to Tesla, and might have found the answer to building autonomous vehicles.
0: So in 2017, when I co-founded the company, that was after a number of years of research and doing my PhD at the University of Cambridge, working on new machine learning technology that gave the ability for machines to see for themselves and, and to make their own decisions. And at the time... You know, we'd seen billion dollar investment rounds in a classical robotics approach to self-driving where self-driving vehicles were being built where they were told how to drive. They were told where to go through high definition maps that would tell them the route they should take, where to look for objects. And they were largely coded with rules for how they should behave. Now, when I thought, okay, what is it going to take to to bring self-driving, not from like a small affluent city, you know, a small scale pilot, but to really bring it to the entire world? When you think about that, it's you, you want to see a technology that has the onboard intelligence to make its own decisions, to understand things, and make, to operate in a safe way. You're never going to see the same thing twice on the road. Everything is new, whether it's the weather, the road conditions, the way that the, the other agents in the scene. And so for that reason, you need to have the ability for a vehicle to generalize to, to new scenarios and make sure it has robust behavior. So when you think about all of those kind of things, plus you need to be able to operate on a you know, set of equipment that's actually commercially feasible to scale. So not hundreds of thousand dollars of worth of sensors and compute on a vehicle, but more like what we see in our cars today, cameras, radar, a single GPU. That kind of vision is for me what will bring autonomy to scale. And so that's what we refer to as AV 2.0, a next generation approach to autonomous vehicles, and is what we've set out to build at Wave. The way we do that, and six years ago, this was a very contrarian way of thinking about doing things. But the way we do, it, we do that is we... Um, we construct a single large neural network, an end-to-end a neural network that learns to drive, uh, that learns things from data that are more complex than humans can hand engineer, but gives the car the ability to drive in the busyness of central London or drive different vehicles, cars and vans, or drive in, in new cities and these kind of things. And so that's the technology that we've been able to build to date.
1: When are we going to see self-driving cars on the road?
0: There's many ways you can answer this question. And uh, first of all, I'm going to say, I'm not going to give you, we, we have a timeline internally that we're um, pushing ourselves to work towards, but uh, I'm not going to share that publicly for a clear reason that I think it's important. Uh, the industry has suffered from a lot of hype cycle challenges in the past. And I think you know sharing information that when you have conviction behind it is important. And of course, these development timelines have a lot of moving factors in them. And so for that reason, I can talk about things that are here and now or we'll talk about the vision of where we're going, but we're quite careful to set expectations externally, you know, when, when we can put our, our credibility behind them.
1: Why did you feel it was important as a CEO to set an internal target?
0: Uh, I think you've got to have a clear belief around where you're going. Um, I think you have to show say an existence proof of, of how things might occur. Now, of course, what I try and do is, as, as CEO, is set a, a vision of the things that that we hold as beliefs and where we want to go, but empower the team to go and build towards that. So, I don't want to be in a position where I'm dictating the path because, um, you know, I'm only one brain, and uh, I think we want to harness the collective intelligence of people that are much more expert than I am in, in their respective fields. Uh, so. I think I can, I can paint an example that's built from the collective belief we have. You know, I think that gives people something to rally around. But ultimately, better ideas are going to come up along the way or things are going to change. We'll learn new things, discover problems that were unknown unknowns or these kind of things. And they will require us to adapt.
1: Just to follow up with that question, what, what's the single biggest sort of technological challenge with a self-driving car? Or what's the single biggest sort of dilemma that is the most difficult to solve?
0: Yeah, there are a lot of challenges that are going through my mind. Uh it's a wealth of I mean, if yeah, if you want an interesting problem to work on, uh, it's it's the place you want to be. Look, one I call out is the long tail of edge cases. The the things that you're never going to see the same thing twice on the road. You might see something similar, but how do you build a system that can generalize from things you have seen to to a new scenario? You know, you may have seen a blizzard, you may have seen a you know, a child running on the road, but can you deal with a child running on the road in a blizzard, for example? How can you compose skills in new ways uh, to deal with unusual or rare events? That's, that, that's one of the hardest ones.
1: Wave was founded in 2017 and has raised more than $258 million of funding from an A-list collection of investors. Those investors include Sir Richard Branson, Microsoft, Bailey Gifford, Balderton Capital, and Ocado, the online grocer. However, as Alex Kendall says, it's not always been a smooth journey for the company.
0: We, we started off in a residential house in Cambridge and had 15 people building and the small bedroom was our server room the large bedroom was our boardroom and one day the council asked us uh, well, why, are you, why are you building a business in this house you might need to move out of here uh, so f- <laughs> some silly ones like that but no some more um, you know some more significant ones around um, I think we've done well at making sure that business is well capitalized like we've we've never had to focus on short-term demos to please investors but uh, we've always looked to raise capital when we're in a position of strength when we have a strong balance sheet and to continue to make sure that we're we've great liquidity and we can focus on the longer term way that this is going to scale. So we haven't come to like, you know, a week a week from being out of cash or anything like that. Those kind of stories that you hear. Um, but it's been more around yeah, I guess significant I'd actually say significant hiring decisions and people decisions have been very important in the growth of a company as well as significant partner decisions and that's not signing or making the binary decision at the end of a contract, but it's the things you do you know, if I look at our biggest partnerships, whether it's on the investor or go to market partnerships or supplier front, these are relationships that I'm thinking of a couple have been five plus years in the making, where sustained execution against the expectations over time has built trust. Where um, you know, where that length of time of trust and relationships has made those things possible. So it's not the binary decision at the end of do you sign the contract after months of negotiation, but it's those relationships and where you've invested over time. And it's been interesting how some things that you you do and you invest time uh, that don't seem particularly timely or strategic, it's been really interesting to see how they come full circle and are often more valuable than you expected when you first, first set foot in them.
1: I just want to go back to the origins of the company in, in Cambridge. Who was it that you were able to talk to and learn from at that time?
0: I could, I could um, shout out a, a few people that I'm very grateful for who, who are a few examples. So actually, I... Did an internship one summer at a Silicon Valley startup and the CEO there, Adam Bry at Skydio, was an amazing mentor and someone who inspired me with what he had built. Uh, my PhD supervisor, Roberto Cipolla, got me into computer vision in the first place and also just had a real entrepreneurial mindset into the way that he empowered me as a student to, to go and learn and build. Or even a local scientist that was at a company down the road, uh, Jamie Shotton, who you know, when I was a PhD student, uh, he inspired me with the work that he'd done previously and and some of the amazing technology that he was building. You know, voila! Uh, today, we're fortunate enough to see that he's joined uh, joined our team as our chief scientist, to name a few.
1: What were some of the most important things you learned? Like when you were in Silicon Valley on the internship, an amazing environment for you to be in at that time. Like what, what what were you
0: able to learn? It was interesting. I, I think the the thing I learned most and and observed was company culture. You know, seeing the way that the team came together every Friday for an all hands push for demos, the way that the team, you know, rallied around different challenges, uh, but also had, you know, focus and, you know, extreme levels of expertise, the way that, that, that testing was done and, and just the complexity of building at an industrial scale robotics of what you needed from everything from simulation to hardware, to, to software infrastructure and, and compute. Uh, so I, I walked away just inspired from that. When
1: you were growing up in New Zealand, was were you were always interested in robotics and, and and AI and computers? When did or when did it start to really emerge?
0: Yeah, I loved it. I I was in my teenage years coding around with video games and things like this with my friends. Uh, when I was eighteen, I built a a quadcopter at the time. You know, before you could get any of them commercially, and built the system that I could fly around my, my family's farm in the outskirts of Christchurch and uh, had good fun chasing the sheep around the paddock. Actually, the first company <laughs> I tried to start was a agricultural robotics company we called it Aerial Growth and it was a quadcopter that could fly around manually at the time but we want to make it autonomous where it could land and measure pasture length around a farm and we went to a pitch day and in front of 300 people I was flying this this drone in front of the audience and it, uh one of the propellers may have fallen off and it crashed spectacularly and <laughs> yeah. so uh, i you know i share the same nerves when we're giving a demo of our latest system to to someone here uh you know doing live robot demos is is is, is, is always a um yeah, always a, a thrilling experience, but we've said, I've certainly learned a lot from... How, how old the were you when you were
1: doing that demo? When, when was that?
0: Oh, 18 or 19.
1: So this is pre-Cambridge, or was it when you... Yeah. yeah,
0: pre-Cambridge, back in New Zealand.
1: Yeah. So when... So tell me about then going to Cambridge, because obviously a part of your story is you leave New Zealand to go to Cambridge and you obviously haven't gone back. So why did you decide that you wanted to do that? And how, for you, at that young age, how difficult was it?
0: Well, when I finished... Uh, my engineering degree at auckland university Uh, i mean there's some amazing niche companies in new zealand like we've got one of the best rocket companies in the world we've got the world's biggest small business accounting software uh, to you know rocket lab and zero to name a few companies you know there are some incredibly niche things that we're world class in Uh, but coming out of university you know i wanted to to go and build stuff but that wasn't uh, the graduate programs weren't, you know, were, were were too rigid to allow for that kind of creativity that I was inspired by. So when I was fortunate enough to win a scholarship to go to Cambridge University, I thought it'd be the most amazing adventure to go and do something new, different. And, and that took me over there. Arriving in Cambridge, I remember getting off the plane at Heathrow. I'd never been to Europe. And I I went up to Trinity College in Cambridge and moved in and was told that Isaac Newton used to be in a room down the corridor. Uh, it was a literal castle, that place. I, there was no Wi-Fi, only wide internet. There was uh, not really any heating, a bath, no shower. It was quite an experience moving into, but going for, for the formal dinners there. But more importantly, the people and the conversations and the you know, ability to take three or four years to step back and you know, just explore and, and innovate and create, uh, it was magic. And I'd love to redo those years if I had a chance.
1: Tell me then about when the company gets founded and created, because you touched on it there, it, it was in a house. So you're doing your research at Cambridge, and then it starts to to evolve in, in, into wave today. So how did that happen?
0: Yeah, so when I um, when I finished my PhD, you know, there was a lot of excitement about the research we're doing. It got a lot of traction in the academic community. There's a lot of the automotive industry were interested in it. We we saw some quite you know high <laughs> figure sums, certainly for a PhD student, of interest to you know, buy out the technology and things like that. But I really didn't think that the, just the computer vision technology alone was going to be the end of the story. In order to make a, a self-driving car, you need a full AI system that can't it does not just can see things for itself, but can also make its decisions and and work end to end. And so I wanted to go that next step and build the full end to end machine learning technology to to bring the benefits that we've been discussing. And so through some exposure through Silicon Valley and mentors, uh, I learned about the world of venture capital and. And so off the back of that, we went and pitched some funds and, and found a couple that were willing to back us, raise capital. First thing we did is we rented a house, moved in there, started to build up servers, got a car in the garage. And six months after that, we had it driving for the first time in the world with reinforcement learning, driving around the block.
1: You mentioned then that you'd, that you'd had offers for the while you were at Cambridge. I mean, presumably those were offers that would have made you a very rich man at a very young age. But you, you said no you just talk me through that decision and why because a lot of people clearly would have made it the other decision well
0: i do feel privileged somewhat that you know i got to go through university with a scholarship so i didn't have debt i i feel you know privileged to have an upbringing where i you know where i've been able to prioritize learning and learning and experience and and quite frankly be able to go a couple of years without a salary and go uh, with a nominal salary and 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 go and try and 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 do something where I, I do prioritise experiences and learning and, and I was passionate about this technology, convinced be the future, and, and that's really driven a lot of those decisions that I, I made at the time and still do today.
1: Wave has offices in California as well as its headquarters in King's Cross in London, which is where I'm speaking to Alex Kendall. On top of that, it has investors from around the world, including the US and UK. This gives Wave and Alex Kendall a unique perspective on what it's like to build a business in the UK, especially compared to Silicon Valley.
0: From a roading perspective, not only have you got great investment in roading infrastructure in the UK, uh, but also it's just incredibly complex and challenging to be able to drive on on UK roads. Uh, A lot of the cities are built with medieval origins. You've got uh, complex road structures, lots of roundabouts and merging intersections unclear lane markings. It's far from the grid-like streets and wide boulevards that you see in the United States, for example. It's interesting because people say, look, why wouldn't you go to an easier, why don't you go to a desert city and start there or something like this? Uh, Why why do you start in somewhere so complex like London? Actually, it's been a great forcing function to force us to build something at scales. I say this quite often, if you can learn to drive in London, you can drive in many places around the world. And so it's challenged us to build technology that is intelligent, capable, and scalable.
1: Do you think, obviously you were in Cambridge when you started the business, but do you think being in the UK and the UK's roads and its medieval systems, that encouraged you to take the approach that you've taken w- with the cameras and the AI rather than the rules-based that others took, which is more suited to a grid system?
0: Yeah, one of the interesting dynamics that I, I we've seen play out in the self-driving industry is a lot came from... Uh, the US DARPA Grand Challenge, which was in the mid 2000s, a US government funded program where mostly universities competed to show self driving technological breakthroughs. And we saw uh, you know, largely uh, uh, Google you know, uh, acquired a lot of that talent and used it to build out the Google self driving car program. As that grew, many people left that program and started other companies. But the result was most of the major self driving efforts through the 2010s. Uh, were led or started by people from that program. And that program was pioneering in traditional robotics, LIDAR, and rules-based approaches to, to robotics. And uh, what that meant was that the prevailing approach to self-driving was that classical ro- approach to robotics. Now, that got all the investment That is where well, all the sunk cost has gone. Now, fast forward to when we started, You know, we started to see a new age of machine learning come out whether it was uh, what we saw in the UK from DeepMind with their work in AlphaGo that showed how to beat the world champion at the game of Go with machine learning or some of the research that I was fortunate enough to to do with our team at at Cambridge on building perception systems that could understand uh, the world for themselves without an HD map. These kind of technologies have formed a next generation approach to autonomous driving. And I think being outside of that bubble of the Silicon Valley DARPA Grand Challenge era it's probably a factor in us being able to build this without being compared day on day. You know, how are you doing against those systems on the road today? Oh, you're so far behind. You know, we were it took longer to get started because we were building something new, but now is gathering steam, is is becoming globally competitive. So the fact that we weren't compared to our neighbours and the fact that we had space, we we're in a different market, uh, we weren't surrounded by people that were all of that you know ilk of thought, and actually were able to come out with contrarian ideas, and uh, and go build them in our own way, but still have the critical mass of a credibility of ecosystem and the support networks and partners around us. Those kind of factors, uh, I, I think, certainly played their part in enabling us to get to where we are.
1: So one of the things I ask is that you've got this great unique position of um, seeing the UK and seeing Silicon Valley. And it's obviously a comparison. People love to make UK, US and what's the UK like as a place to do business. So someone who has that unique perspective, I mean, what it, what do you think the UK is like as a place to do business? And what differences do you see in your conversations with UK, potential UK investors compared to potential US investors?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've done, I've done, we've done our best to try and get the best of both worlds. I mean, we've brought in some of the culture from, uh, from Silicon Valley, whether it's things like equity incentives in our team. Everyone on our team is a, every full time member of Wave is an equity holder of the company. And uh, we've put in place compensation schemes that, I think Silicon Valley does a really good job at providing significant ownership to employees, and that's not often the case with UK businesses. And so, you know, we've really prioritized trying to maximize our team's ownership to really drive the right incentives and the right the right growth of the team. Uh, whether it's something like that, or certainly you see uh, a difference in, in in risk appetite often play out uh, between. European and, and US investors to draw the, the the difference. Now it's not always the case, and I think there are some exceptions. And it's great to see um, some many of the UK investors that have backed us, uh, you know, come out and start to have appetite to back ambitious deep tech companies. I'm passionate about that, and I'd love to see more of it. But that is uh, that is certainly an area where the US uh, remains ahead today.
1: How much has the UK changed since you founded the business? How much is like we touched on this earlier, like yeah. around here, but also the the maturity of the VC world and the conversations you're having
0: well look my experience it came when i was at, when i was at cambridge university when i started the company there was uh i was fortunate that there were so many people around me that had started companies that had raised venture that had gone and built to seed or series a stage but typically got acquired then and there were a couple when i was starting that just got acquired and there was a lot of buzz around that what that meant is that you know, I had mentorship, I had people to learn from, and I, I think that was uh, I was fortunate to be able to follow their paths and and introductions to investors, raising money, helping set up the company and that kind of thing. And then moving to London, i, I you know, I have seen over the last 10, 10 years, well, I've, I've been here, uh, what is it, nine years now, I, I've seen that grow. We've seen, you know, a couple of the big American firms just open offices here. I was at Andreessen Horowitz's open party last week here in London, and, and you know the number of events, I'd also shout out that uh, you know, events like Founders Forum and the ones that, that First Minute Capital and Brent Hoberman puts on, I've, I've been to those for many years and they've just grown in stature. They're pulling in leaders from around the world, but the people you see year on year that are the backbone of leaders of building the startup and technology ecosystem in the UK that just seems to grow in force over time. So it's certainly moving in the right direction. I think the thing we now need to see is more examples of uh, deep technology companies here in, in the UK and and perhaps Europe go from that proof of concept, de-risking the science, showing it works, and actually scaling it to product and global impact. And and so that's I think that's the phase that we're in now at Wave. And I think there are a few examples of that. There are many more in the United States. But you know what that requires is that it requires you to you know, hold your nerve not sell out early raise the capital that allows you to grow through that stage and and you know have the trust from the market that you'll take your scientific endeavor and actually productize it it also requires the right mindset to not try and take on too much and form the right partnership ecosystems around you you know in our case we don't want to manufacture or operate the vehicles you know we know our expertise it's in building world-class AI systems and so ensuring that you have the right partners and choosing partners and forming relationships that are strategically aligned we've been Incredibly fortunate to work with some, some enormous companies that have really fast forwarded what we've done, Microsoft being a really good example. You've been listening to Business Leader
1: with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. For more business news and analysis, check out businessleader.co.uk or sign up to our newsletter, Off to Lunch, where you'll get business news, ideas, and expertise. Sent to you throughout the week. You can sign up at off to lunch.substack.com.